Um, so we're in the middle of a sermon series called, oh yeah, sorry, I totally forgot. Thank you, Grimelda. For the rest of the little kids now, go hang out and, you know, do all the things that we promised we would do. I probably forgot to tell. So, yes, if you are under, I don't know, four feet years old, you can leave. Ah, yeah, so we're in the middle of a sermon series. Uh, It's called Seeing God in Them. And we've been talking about, you know, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Peter and Cornelius and sort of the overview of what God wanted to do and how he wanted to challenge Peter by introducing him to a bunch of Gentiles. And then last week we talked about how Abraham was challenged and and some of the things that he realized he had to give up. And we have to give up because of this calling to love God and to follow him. And, And sometimes there's things that we hold on to or fears or whatever that hold us back from grabbing hold of what God has for us. And so this week we're going to talk about Though in the midst of this letting go, what we have to grab a hold of and what we have to, to hold on to, what really matters. And we're going to be talking about the Jerusalem Council in Acts 10. But I want to give a little background to that before we get started. So we see in Acts, and we haven't talked about this yet, but hopefully you're at least somewhat familiar with the story. There's this guy named Saul who like has this amazing experience of Jesus. He's, you know, kind of a, a really good bad dude. He's a religious guy who's like super excited about God, but also like imprisoning and killing people. And Jesus grabs him and changes him and says, you're going to be named Paul. And Paul becomes the apostle, the the one sent out to the Gentiles, to the people that aren't the Jewish people, right? So it started really small, the Jewish community, and God wants to go out to the world into connecting with them. And so... There's this guy, Paul, and he has this conversion experience, and then he goes and he spends, it depends on how you lay out the timeline, but somewhere between three years or so, studying and getting to know Jesus and this calling. Now, we talked about a couple weeks ago, Peter goes and sees Cornelius, right? And there's about 12 people in that room who come to faith and like, Holy Spirit shows up and they're super excited. And Peter leaves and he goes back and he tells the Jerusalem people like, guess what? You don't have to be Jewish to be a Christian. And it's mind-boggling to them. But when Peter leaves, those 12 people are just full of the Holy Spirit and super excited about faith. So you've got this thing going on in another place with Paul and then you've got these Gentiles, and they, they have this sense of, like, mission and purpose. And for the next five chapters in Acts, it starts talking about how these 12 people start going out and planting churches. And not, like, intentionally, I'm going to go plant a church, but, like, hey, let me, let me tell you about what Jesus did. Let me tell you what I've experienced. Let, let me tell you what God can do. And you start seeing Christians appear in sort of the whole northern Turkey area and spreading around. You know, you don't have to be a trained somebody like me or whoever to talk to people about faith. See, I think sometimes we think that, well, the place to get people to introduce to Jesus is to bring them to church, right? This whole movement of Christianity that's going to interact with 
the 99.9% of the rest of humanity outside of the Jewish people that are going to come to faith starts just because people go, whoa, I had this experience. Let me tell you about Jesus. And so they're doing that, and the church is growing. And in fact, they, then the then Acts centers on this one little town or city called Antioch. And there's a lot of cool things going on there, and people are coming to faith, and things are being changed. So the Jerusalem Council says, well, we've actually heard about this place. We're going to send this guy Barnabas, whose name literally means the son of encouragement. And we're going to go encourage these people. And Barnabas gets there and goes, well, this place is off the hook, and I need help. So he recruits a new Christian apostle, Paul, to come to Antioch. And Paul and, and Barnabas are there, and it says that they're there for a year, and they're encouraging this church and trying to figure out what does this look like and how does this work and all the details of church. And then one day, they're in, I assume, a prayer meeting, and the Holy Spirit says, you know what, now I want you to send Paul and Barnabas out into the world. And I want you to send them to all these little churches or these little cities and towns where people have become Christians. And I want you to encourage them. So they pray for them, and they send them out on this mission trip. And so they start going from town to town, and they have this, well, they're encouraging this seed of faith that was planted. You know, if I took this apple, right, cut it open, took out a seed, assume I hadn't, like, you know, microwaved it or something, planted it in the ground, give it some water, start to grow. And before long, it would start to look like this. And then it would be growing its own little fruit. You see, this is, this is how God works. Fruit begets fruit. Of course, this has been waxed and made artificially shiny. Real fruit's a little messier, kind of like me. But fruit begets fruit, and this is what we see start to happen in the church. The church is growing. And then they send Paul and Barnabas to encourage this growth and to strengthen it. And Paul has this amazing, encouraging message for all these Christians scattered all over the place. Ready for it? I mean, this is, this is the son of encouragement, you know, Barnabas and Paul. It says in Acts 14, 20, 22, they were strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it's necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. It's necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. See, and I think sometimes, well, we don't even like having unpadded pews. <laughs> Not anybody in particular, I'm sure, but Paul is saying, look, it's going to be hard. And here's the deal. It is. 
Right over the next 14 or four verses or so, there's like this list of the different things that, that happen and Paul's confronted by a sorcerer and he's you know, persecuted and he's kicked out of cities and he's drugged outside by these Jewish people and he's stoned and like thing after thing happens to them. It's like it's hard. If you want to follow God, if you want to grow, right, you got to push up out of the dirt, you got to stretch, and you got to, you know, deal with winter and summer and cold, and it's hard to grow in faith. You know, we don't understand persecution like that in this country. I was in Iraq, northern Kurdistan, working in refugee camps, and I met this guy, Talal. I have a picture of him here. And Talal is uh, a Yazidi person. It's a small ethnic group. A Yazidi person who committed his life to Jesus and came to faith. And shortly after he did that, he got arrested and put in a prison by ISIS. And when I met him, he was living in a, what we would call a shipping container, kind of converted into a house in this little refugee village of, I don't know, a couple hundred of them. And he showed us where he had been shot and he'd been whipped with cords and been told to try and denounce his faith. faith. And he was there with his family. There's a picture of that. His wife, Amir, there. And three kids. Well, two of them are his. One of them was his brother and sister-in-laws. And his sister-in-law joined up with ISIS and was selling the little girl sitting on the floor there in pink to people. And so Tamir, Tamir collected everything that he could, took everything that he had left from being a refugee, and purchased that little girl for $7,000. And he was trying to do it because he said, Christ compels me. I have to live out my faith. And it was so inspiring. Because here's somebody in the midst of war, betrayal by his family, arrested, arrested, shot, who's just like, I'm living for Jesus. I think about that when I hear Christians in America talk about being persecuted. When we talk about, oh, it's not fair that I don't know, fill in the blank. We can't do this, that, or anything anymore. Or, I don't know, there's a big kerfuffle a few years ago in my church when they wanted to take away the housing allowance for pastors. I had somebody on my board say, they're persecuting us. I was like, no. They're taking away a privilege. <laughs> Maybe. You see, there's this tendency when things are really easy, that we make little things really big. And we miss the heart. We're called 
grow fruit, to love others. And our faith should be hard sometimes. Now, my hope is none of you ever get, you know, shot and arrested and beaten and bloodied. But you're still called. You're called to love others even when it hurts. You're called to forgive people. You're called to maybe be taken advantage of. You're called to reach out. You're called to, to be embarrassed, to be, you know, awkward. I, I hate to say that. You know, when I first cut my teeth in ministry, um, I was, Jeanette and I were going to this little church and our whole goal was to be, uh, the church's goal was to be neighbors in our community. And so we started this thing called Church at the Park. And Church at the Park is a, is a, we would go once a month and we would do a meal and then just have worship in the park with, at, this, at this homeless camp. And so we, this is some pictures of this. This is, I don't know, first or second year when Shanette and I were just kind of getting started. And we'd have this meal there, and then, you know, we'd bring some supplies, we'd collect stuff, and, and most of our offerings were, hey, you know, yeah, give money because we're supposed to do that, but also bring stuff to help out. We're going to encourage. And, you know, there's a piece when I started this where I felt like I'm the good person helping the poor people. Right? Like, I'm the one that God's got, you know, here to kind of help serve, and we as a church, we're coming together, and we're going to help them, and, and you know, we're going we're gonna to encourage them. God's going to use us. It's all about us being better than fixing them. Because, well, we all get it, right? Homeless people aren't worth as much in our society. They're not as important. In fact, most of the time, they're an annoyance. But you know what I started to realize as I hung out with these people? You're not a whole lot different than me. Let's go back one picture. One of these kids is the pastor's kid. One of them's homeless. Tell which one? See, that's something that I love about children because I think they get it. Just sitting down and talking. This is my friend, next picture, my friend Sherman's talking to this guy. I think this guy is Richard. I don't really remember his name. But Richard was married, had a kid, lived in an apartment, and a decent job. Got, drunk dri- got caught drunk driving. One thing snowballed after another. His wife left him, took the kids, lost his job. He was living in a van in this little park. And here's the thing. As I got to know Richard, I realized something about me. I am one or two horrible situations or bad decisions away from being the exact same place they are. One or two. You see, the thing about the gospel, the thing that the early Christians got, 
is that everybody in the feet, at the feet of Jesus is equal. And the reason there's persecution, the reason things start turning upside down, the reason people start to get upset is because Christians started treating everybody as if they mattered. And that just messes up the social order of things. I mean, I really like to feel like I'm, you know, better than others. I'm not supposed to say that. But we do, right? And see, at the feet of God, they are just as important as we are. And of course, this creates all kinds of chaos back then. And there's all kinds of persecution and things that are breaking out. Problems, transformations, difficulties, so on and so forth. But this is encouraging and life-giving. In fact, Paul says in Acts 15, 3, when they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. Can I, can I say here, there is a difference between having all the right answers and the right things in church and actually seeing the Spirit of God move and seeing life changed. I mean, we can talk, right, about what's good and what's not. We can... We can you know, chat about what, what matters and how God's going to change things or what he cares about or what he doesn't care about. But you stand with somebody who's just experienced Jesus for the first time or done something that they never thought they could do. All the details stop mattering. Think about your experience. When was the first time you were inspired by Jesus? I'm going to assume you were inspired by Jesus if you're sitting in church. If you happen to be visiting and are just like, I don't know, I wandered in here today. God's got you here for a reason. Pay attention. Uh, but beyond that, when was it that you were first inspired by Jesus? Or somebody representing him? Can you remember? Can you picture that joy, that elation, that freedom? With all of a sudden the world shifted a little bit, right? I was in Nepal on one of my first mission trips. I was 21 years old. I'd love to get into the details of that, but I don't really have time. And I was with these, there was a, about 25 of us on my little team. And we had these Nepalese people that were translators and kind of shepherds and, I don't know, corralers, because we were a bunch of crazy kids who had no idea what we were doing and were making a mess. And it was really dangerous for them. It was illegal to share your faith then. They would kick us out of the country, but they would imprison them. And we had these, these people that would shepherd us around, and we would go and we would do open dramas in these villages, in these areas, talking about Jesus, and then pray with people, encourage them. It was crazy. 
And I remember being 21 years old and hanging out with these, these Christians in Nepal who had such faith. And they would just go into an area and they'd be like, well, yeah, you know, the chief of police in this region lives here, but we'll just pray that he's out of town. And they'd just pray and go anyway. And I remember just seeing this and being so inspired. In fact, like crazy inspired. So we went to this one town. I have a picture of a, this, this little temple. Each of, each of the villages had this kind of little dedication to the deity of the village. There's like, I don't know, 33 million Hindu gods. It's pretty crazy. But each of them would have this little temple. And we showed up at this village, and I don't think this was the actual village, but you get the idea. We showed up at this village, and it was kind of like this, and it was up in the hillside, and it was raining. And we, we had, you know, all of our makeup and our sound equipment and stuff that we would do for this drama, and we, you couldn't perform it in the rain. And so we get there, and we're kind of huddled underneath this little shelter waiting for the rain to stop, hopefully, you know, I don't know, are we going to be able to do this or not? And the mayor of the village comes up to me as I'm standing there, and he says, my God doesn't want to hear your message, and he's the God of rain, so it's going to rain. Now, I don't normally roll like this. I probably should. Maybe I've lost something over the years. But I look back at him, and I said, no, my God's the God of rain. And in the name of Jesus, stop. And within 30 seconds, the rain stopped. And the guy looked at me, and I went. <laughs> and he turned around, and he walked away, and we did our drama. I'll tell you, that did more for my faith. In 20 years, I was sitting through sermons in children's school. There is something encouraging and life-giving about seeing faith lived out and then living it out, paying the cost, stepping out, risking being embarrassed. That will change people's hearts and minds and lives. course. Fast forward a number of years, life and church, and uh, kind of starts to dumb down a little bit. And you know what's interesting now, as a Christian, as a pastor, I probably spend most of my time dealing with stuff that isn't related to that at all. It's logistics. Who did that? Answer this theological question. How do we solve that problem? What do we do with the kids? How do we, you know, keep those people from being grumpy? It's all the little stuff. You see, Acts 15.1. It says, some men came down from Judah and began to teach the brothers, the Gentile Christians, Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, 
Can I just say, when we get lost, when we lose focus on the mission, we start to focus on the little details, and it becomes crazy. There's somewhere around 30,000 denominations, Christian denominations in the world, and every one of them came up because of something like this. <laughs> you have to do this in order to, you know, be in God's blessing. You have to do this in order to, you have to answer this question this way, and then you got, I don't know, the Church of God of Anderson, Indiana, and such and such a date. It's so easy when you're not actually living in faith to start picking at the details. And these are Christians that are coming up. And, they're, and you know, here's the deal. These are really good people. These are people that are incredibly sincere. This is, these are Jewish Christians who love Jesus and are following him, and they're on a mission trip to help correct the people that have screwed it up. And I've been on a couple of those mission trips, sad to say. Learn from them, hopefully. But let me tell you how it's going to be. This needs to change. key issue here that they get backwards is they say this is about salvation. This is about transformation. Right? We talked a couple weeks ago about the idea of salvation being turning towards a light as opposed to, you know, you guys are on the good side and you guys are on the bad side. They get this screwed up. They're like, hey, you guys, okay, you're kind of trying to follow Jesus, but really you're on the wrong side. You need to, you know, get circumcised and move over here. Talk about paying a cost. They make it a salvation issue. See, the thing is, the word salvation is the word sozo, which is the same word for healing. Restoration. Salvation isn't about getting to the other side. It's about getting healed and growing, restored connection with God, connection with who we were meant to be. And they miss this. They started focusing on the little details and missing the bigger picture. When I was in Iraq on that trip, one of the people that I connected with is Pastor, who's Superintendent Wiam. He's the little short guy in the red. Ton of fun, made all kinds of eh, sketchy jokes. And the, Samir is the guy on the other side of me, and he's a pastor in this area. And I had a picture of his house, but it didn't come through right, or his church. And here's the deal. Samir is doing outreach to Muslims and Yazidis and Christian refugees. And I got invited to his church and invited to speak there, and I'm sitting around, and there's women wearing hijabs, and there's, you know, like just this wide variety of people sitting in this church. And they're having very real discussions about what do we say is okay to do and not do. Like, can you go to mosque and pray if you're an Arab who's converted to Christianity? Are you betraying your faith? Well, but if I don't go, my husband will beat me or hurt me or I'll get kicked out of my family. So can I go to mosque and just pray to Jesus there? I mean, they're having these very real conversations. But here's the difference. They're trying to figure out what God is doing and aware that they're 
that God is much bigger than any of these little details. They're trying to understand the Spirit of God, not follow all the rules. I think sometimes that's where we get things mixed up. See, we have this tendency to take the universal things that we've been told we need to do or these things that we've been told we need to do and to make them universal. I don't do this, therefore you shouldn't do that. We don't do this, therefore, well, God would never call you to do that. And when that happens, we begin to lose focus on the big picture. Which is why in the midst of all the stuff going on and the you know, circumcision challenges and all these things going on, the Jerusalem, they call it Jerusalem Council, and they bring these Christians in from all over the place. Paul comes in and, and Peter and James, and the, the whole church comes together to start talking about what really matters, what, what really, really matters in our faith. And in the midst of it, Paul or Peter stands up, and this is in Acts 15. Now, by the way, this is kind of ironic because Peter also had been called out by Paul for sort of turning his back on the Gentile Christians and trying to make them eat like he was. It's, by the way, one of the reasons I think Peter is the leader of the early church because he could be Christ's right-hand man. And when somebody says, hey, I think you're off here, he goes... Oh, yeah, my bad. Humility. It's pretty amazing. Anyway, Acts 15, 7 through 11. So after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. In other words, focus on the big things. I'm saved by grace. You're saved by grace. You're not saved by the comfort of your pew or the color of the walls or the way that person looked at you or didn't. You're saved by grace. All your mess. You've been called by God to carry his love into the world. Of course, that doesn't mean there aren't any guide rails, right? I mean, they kind of have this whole debate and discussion, and then in Acts 15, 28 and 29, it says, they write a letter to the Gentile churches, and they say, our bad, those guys weren't from us. Sorry, you don't need to do the circumcision thing. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision in ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements. You abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourself from these things. 
These are the four universals. And I would argue for most of us, at least two of them are completely irrelevant. Right? I don't know any of you that are going to go out and make a blood milkshake anytime soon or strangle your goat in the backyard and then eat the meat without draining it first. Right? Big deals back then. We could totally get into why those things mattered and what that meant. It goes back to the flood and God's command to Noah and blah, 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 blah. But the point is, yeah, there are some universals here, but they're pretty small. So if we have differences, you know, try not to be sexually immoral. That'd be good for you. But all the rest of the stuff, you see, there's these three words for, for things that we believe as Christians. Dogma, doctrine, and adiaphora. And I would love to get into this. I'll do, maybe I'll do a sermon sometime on those three because it's fascinating. But basically, dogma are the things that are core, central salvation issues. If you're not doing this, you're not in the Christian faith. If you don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God or you don't believe in the Trinity, whatever you call yourself, you're not historically, culturally Christian. That's a dogma. Doctrine are things that we think are true and we really believe are true and are good, but are not core central salvation issues. Whether you think you have free will or God has just scripted everything is a doctrine issue. And then all the rest is audiophora. It's noise. It's stuff. Christianity gets in big trouble when we get those things reversed. Most of the time, people get bent out of shape because of adiaphora, not dogmas. And it is one of my hopes for this church that we can have a great discussion about all the adiaphora stuff, but hold to the dogma stuff. I mean, I would love to see discussions among, you know, people about how faith is lived out and how do we pray and how do we not and, and what's the end times going to look like and, and what does the second coming of Jesus mean for us and you know, how do you vote? And somebody's like, man, I am all Republican and 100%, like, it's just amazing. And somebody else is like, I'm full Democrat, progressive, liberal, anarchist, all the stuff, and it's amazing. And they love Jesus together. People who say, I, am, I hold to extremely conservative sexual roots and orientations and faith. And somebody else says, I am, I am gay and I love Jesus. And they can sit down and they can talk together. Because see, the thing is, we get... The details flipped with what really matters. And what happens when we do that is we stop growing. We stop producing fruit. We start becoming people that instead of the world looking at them going, man, they messed up the social order, the world starts looking at us and go, they're making the social order more important than anything else in the world. And they stop seeing Jesus. You're called to grow. You're called to be fruity. 
called to love people and then share that goodness of God with others. And maybe there's a place where you've forgotten the big things. You forgot the life-transforming work of Jesus. As we close here, the worship team's going to come up. We're going to sing one more song. Will you focus on the big things? You see, this tree isn't trying to grow this apple. We don't produce fruit by our effort. You just put yourself in a good environment and in a good place, and God does the growth. If you're not seeing the fruit of Jesus in your life, change your environment. Start praying. Start connecting with people, connecting with them. It's going to help you focus on what really matters. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much that you love us in the midst of our mess. I thank you so much that in our flawness and our brokenness and our conflict and our social stuff and our angst, that you love us. And I thank you that you challenge us to grow in that love by laying the other stuff aside. May we worship you above everything else. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.